West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who like to get together and chat about a lot of geeky interests and also about a love for the Lord. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my friends Mike and Brian. Mike, how are you doing, good sir? I am doing really, really tired. <laughs> <laughs> You've had, like, guests back-to-back, haven't you? Uh, since the beginning of the month, yes. It's not the same house guests, but they just kind of rotate. They fly out on the same day or the day before the next group comes in. What you don't know is that there is a conspiracy. They actually have a Facebook group where they've all planned this and are all taking turns and hammering at your hospitality. No, they're so nice. Yeah, no, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> but as you yawn, uh, Brian, how are you? I am bewildered, but I'm doing pretty good. Why so? Uh, the company that makes the software that I use at work has recently rolled the visual effects software into their editing software, and I write about Fusion quite a lot. And they've gone from having a uh, community of a few thousand to having two and a half million people suddenly exposed to the software. And so I am just answering questions like crazy. I'm getting way more uh, interaction in the last month than I had in the last year. Wow. Usually expanding a software's community is, is generally a good thing since the user base has more people to bounce things off of. But such a sudden jump sounds taxing. Yes, and the jump was offering this to a whole lot of people who, they're kind of familiar with After Effects, but Fusion is a kind of two magnitudes of complexity above After Effects, and so everyone is confused and everyone's asking questions, and it's hard to draw the lines because it's they didn't actually release the software yet, it's still in beta, and so trying to separate, okay, well, is this problem caused because it's beta and it doesn't quite work right, or because they don't understand how to supposed to work. Mike, what you and I fail to grasp is that in certain circles, especially in the graphics editing community in California, Ryan is by far the most popular and well-known of the three of us. <laughs> I thought he was in, that in all very respect. small circle. Yes. If, there, there are people out there that if we let it drop that, like, oh yeah, I know. I know Brian. Like, you know Brian? You, you know him? <laughs> What's he like? He's very boring. <laughs> so are we talking about a complexity leap from like paint to photoshop or is this not even on the same scale um yeah paint versus photoshop would be a pretty good comparison but it's also coming with a sort of a a paradigm shift because most editors and after effects users are familiar with like this layers thing that photoshop does where you just stick this layer on top of another layer and it's on top okay one gripe against that is that photoshop says the layers are merging they never do (laughs) <laughs> they do if you know the secret math behind the scenes that they obfuscate for you. Uh, see, okay, there, but there, Fusion my works problem. more like a, a flow graph. Like if you've got a flow chart hmm. and the image moves down the flow graph and each little node in the thing does something. And it's a completely different way of thinking. And it's really, really confusing to people who are seeing this kind of graph for the first time. But I'm, I'm writing a book, and now I've suddenly got 2 million more potential readers of that book, so I'm very happy. 
So this could not just be a book that you'd get some recognition, and this might be something big for you. I went from a potential thirty, forty thousand dollars of income for the book to potentially two hundred thousand dollars of income. So, yeah. So you'll be coming out to visit a lot more often, is what you're saying? I hope so. <laughs> Me too. Or, or he could go back to the geek budgeting episode and say, "Oh yeah, I could have my retirement." <laughs> it's like I could retire yesterday. One can hope. So is it safe to say that that's been one of the major things that you've been geeking out to recently? Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> well, what else? You can you can be uh, you can be first for us today then okay so, so we decided the mic was going to go first but i'll go first anyway okay so in our defense though this is really cool what you're talking about yeah so uh i'm writing the book and i as part of that one of the difficulties in writing a book about software and about film particularly is it's difficult to get high quality images to work with because of course everything is copyrighted you can't just say oh hey i worked on the show i'll take some stuff from teen wolf to demonstrate because i've already got the flows but I also recently discovered the Blender Foundation, and Blender is an open source 3D software. And in contrast to most open source software, it's actually good. Um, <laughs> Blender is probably at least as powerful as Lightwave or Maya. That's not as easy to use, and there's no support, but it's very powerful. But the people that did Blender have several open movies where they shot this movie. It's a short film called Tears of Steel. And you can just download all of the footage, high-quality green screen plates, all of their digital assets for like a cyborg arm and a robot. So, And it's all licensed under Creative Commons attribution. So I don't have to like make my book open source. All I have to do is say, hey, this was by the Blender Foundation, and I get to use it for free. And so that is really good. It's a huge godsend for getting this book put together without having to go through a publisher to get clearances and so forth. I'm sorry to say, thank God for people who are believers in Creative Commons. Cause... Yes. Yes. Yeah. It is a wonderful, terrific thing. And uh, other things I'm geeking out about, I can finally say publicly that I am working on Legion, television show for FX. Very cool. No kidding. For those who aren't familiar with that one, Legion is Professor Xavier's son, and he's got this dissociative identity disorder, and each of his different personalities has different segments of his powers. One personality is a powerful telekinetic, another personality is a tremendously powerful psychic. Uh, David himself, the character's actual name is David Haller, I think. He can warp reality, but he's completely and utterly bonkers. I mean, he's insane. And uh, the show, you never quite know what's in his head and what's actually happening. And, and even the stuff that's actually happening is still somewhat skewed. It's a really, really interesting show to work on. We're doing a lot of the CG creature effects. I think they're airing episode three next week. It's a really, really cool show. How psychedelic is it? I will admit I've known about it, but I have not seen an episode yet. Uh, I've only seen one episode, but that one involved the big fight between the Shadow King and Legion was a dance-off. While a dance-off? No, the fight was a dance-off. Okay. Oh, good. That was the battle. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> that sounds great. So what's it like, you know, actually watching your own work in the flow of the show? What's that like? Um, it's a hard question to answer. Sometimes, it depends on what I'm watching, but sometimes something will go by and I won't notice it. And it'll be like a few seconds later, I'm like, wait, 
that was my shot. And I have to go back and watch it again so I can see how did that turn out in the cut. I'll admit, I don't actually watch a lot of my own work. I thought, you know, when I came out here, I thought, man, I'm going to own every DVD. I'm going to watch all my stuff. That's going to be so cool. It's like after 30, 40 episodes of NCIS, I just don't want to watch any more NCIS. (laughs) (laughs) Some of it, uh, like Fringe. I loved Fringe. I watched all my stuff from Fringe. I didn't do a whole lot on Fringe, but uh, I enjoyed the show a lot. I imagine I'll eventually get around to watching all of Legion. I didn't watch the third season of From Dusk Till Dawn. I don't really like gore and horror very much, but I did a lot of shots for that show, but I just never watched it. Sounds like my wife has seen more of your work than you have. <laughs> it's a possibility. Has there ever been a time that you have, when intentionally looking for one of your shots or going back to it, that you have ever, A, thought, wow, I did a really great job on that, or B, that was horrible? <laughs> Both, yes. How how did I let that get by? (laughs) Some of the work I did on Dog with a Blog is, I look back on it, I'm like, oh, wow, that is a really bad composite. And other ones, like, they did a thing, again, for Dog with a Blog, where the dog was in this, like, disco, and they had all of these flashing colored lights, and I managed to get the lights onto the CG dog's face, and it looked like he was actually there. like, wow, I did a great job. I've never actually, I think I sat down and I watched one episode of Dog with a Blog all the way through, and that was pretty much enough, but I did go through and I pulled a lot of my uh, my shots out of there in case I wanted them for my reel. I don't think they'll ever see my reel, maybe one, because I've got Legion now, so why would I put Dog with a Blog on there? <laughs> well, maybe you get hired for something more children-based. Could be. I... I really, the last thing that I need for my portfolio is a dragon. I've got robots, I've got spaceships, I've got ninjas. I need a dragon. No hope of getting some of that sweet, sweet Game of Thrones action? Uh, Well, no, Game of Thrones is over. I did work on a few shots of Game of Thrones, and one of them actually was in a scene with the dragon, but the dragon did not appear in our shot. Of course. Sad. I'm kind of writing down the things that you want to work on all in one shot, kind of as a next mixer for a board game. <laughs> I think uh, Smash Up is the... <laughs> yeah, do they have a Dragon's expansion? Well, they dinosaurs. That's close enough. Yeah. Just give one of the T-Rexes wings. And no one will notice. They have a Game of Thrones expansion. Well, not expansion. They have a Game of Thrones... Variant? You know, in addition, I was going to bring this up on my geek out, but... You might get your chance, because sometime in the next year, Amazon is going to start work on the new Lord of the Rings TV show. Mm -hmm. And it's slated for November of 2019, so if it's based on the Cimmerillion, you might have your chance. Or maybe not a dragon. How do you feel about Balrogs? Is that an okay substitute? (laughs) Balrog would be awesome. (laughs) We don't have... We bid on one Amazon show and didn't get it. I don't think that we've got any Amazon properties, any like contacts at Amazon or any of their production companies. Uh, we've done a little bit for Netflix, but not Amazon. Cool. That'll let you enjoy it a little bit more when it comes on. Maybe I'll watch it instead of skipping it like I seem to do with all my other work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's one of the things is that once you've worked on something, it's work. I mean, once your hobby, you get to just sit and enjoy it. I mean, at least that's yeah. the way that I've experienced it. And we, uh, since we watch... Uh, a lot of times we'll watch the program before we start working on it so that we have context for what we're doing. So there's no surprises 
in the shows that I work on for me. It's like, I already know what's going to happen because, you know, I helped make it. So that's a little bit of a bummer sometimes. Although most of what I've done, most of the things that we've done that on was Teen Wolf. And I wasn't terribly disappointed to not be watching Teen Wolf. I watched the first episode and I just like, uh, they got to the werewolves playing lacrosse and I was done. <laughs> I mean, by the looks of some of the people that are playing lacrosse here in New England, I thought only werewolves played lacrosse. <laughs> no, 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 no. Werewolves, that's, that's silly. Werewolves do not play lacrosse. Water polo, yes. Lacrosse, no. Oh, gosh. And changing oh, man, the filter would... is awful. <laughs> and can you imagine the smell of the locker room? Oh. <laughs> That's why they have their own campus. Just wet, for that. Wet teen dog. is just. <laughs> That's why the creature from the Black Lagoon is really ticked off. Before they started playing water polo, it was creature of the clear lagoon. <laughs> Anything else, man? Well, I am rereading Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn by Tad Williams. Ooh, good book. Yes, and he has started, I don't know how far yet long into it he is, but he has started another series set in Austin Ard, uh, The High King of Austin Ard. And so my mom gave me one of those for Christmas. I'm like, oh, you know what? I should reread The Dragonbone Chair so that I can remember what in the heck was this world was all about. And I've been really, really enjoying my reread. Has there been indication about when the new one's going to be released? Uh, I haven't looked it up. I think there's two that are finished, okay. um, and the third is forthcoming. Gotcha. But I haven't I haven't been keeping track of him as closely as I do Jim Butcher. Yeah. We're all waiting on stuff from Jim Butcher. <laughs> and, um, oh, what's his name? Patrick Close. Rothfuss, yes. We're all waiting. I don't even and, and bother pa- trying to uh, <laughs> anticipate Rothfuss. Yeah, you know, he's probably <laughs> healthier that way. He was actually at PAX this year. I didn't get the chance to, to run into him again. The last time I met up with him, it was, I mean, not like, you know, we were buds chatting or anything. But uh, the last time I was at a signing and he was there, we were briefed, like, you got to keep it quick, you know, give him the thing that you want him to sign and then move along. We got hundreds of people. And since I have so many academic hours studying philosophy of religion, sociology of religion, my own religion is deeply important to me, I made mention of the fact that his religious mythology was so wonderfully woven into the world, and as somebody who's academically and personally invested, it was very rewarding. And he just perked up and his eyes got real wide and said, oh, there is so much in there if you know what to look for. And I said, and I <laughs> and I have. And he's like, there's just so much there. And it was, I was getting moved on. And it was one of those things. It's almost like, can, can we go out for coffee to talk about religious <laughs> He's just happy to find someone who gets it. Yeah, yeah. At least the people there were civil and were nice towards him. I was halfway expecting you to tell us that there was a mob of people holding up signs, leave packs, get out of here, go finish the next book. <laughs> like, how dare you leave your house? You know, it's there's probably one in every group that wants to be snarky about when are you going to finish it. They generally brief people to not to do that because I'll tell you, there's, there is nothing that stifles creative energies more than pouring negativity on somebody about not mm-hmm. exercising their creative energies. No, you're absolutely right. I hope people won't take that seriously. What I said in jest is, is just that jest because we all know he's working hard at it. And he's doing his best. And honestly, if we have to wait quite a while for something as good as the first two, I'm fine waiting. You know, I was a little bit frustrated. 
and then I started writing a book, and then I gave it to the publisher, who gave it to the editor, to back to the publisher, and it's been about three years since they've asked me for another rewrite of anything, so there's that. Yeah. I've always been a firm believer, or a person who more prefers quality over quantity. You know, I'd rather have three books of outstanding quality than nine books of meh. Of this should be fanfic? Yes. <laughs> you know what? Sure. Do you know what? If you want something that's half-heartedly written, I'm sure there is plenty of yeah, fanfic out there for you. It's called fanfiction.net. Wait, there's a website for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not joking. But, like, all of the fanfic that's out on the internet is, like, you know, clean, right? <laughs> oh, of course. We'll talk off podcast. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, did you have anything else? I think that pretty well exhausts it for me. Fair enough. Mike, how about you, my man? How you been, and what have you been geeking out to? Um, I think I might have mentioned PAX once or twice. So I was being courteous. Forget all that. Give us the PAX report. Yeah, I was going to say I mentioned it once or twice a day to anybody who appeared to be living <laughs> in my vicinity. But funny enough, I actually ran into somebody on the train, and she had asked me the question, are you going to PAX? But it was because I looked down and saw what she was reading, and I saw that she had a photocopy of a page from a D&D &D manual. And I'm like, well... It's not often you see one of those. And she's like, oh, I'm building a character, and I'm trying to choose weapons and equipment. Can you help? Next thing you know, <laughs> he was drawn into a 14-hour conversation as she listed off every character she has ever done and why it's influencing her new character. Oh, no, this is her first campaign. Oh. And it was one of those things, like, the doors opened for my stop, and if it wasn't for the fact that my family was expecting me, I probably would have deliberately missed the stop so you know she can tell me about what she and her husband were doing for their characters in their campaign and how do I equip this and what do I do because newbie players are fun and it's it's a wonderful time of exploration and entering into this wonderful world of gaming. But uh, yeah, so uh, presumably she went to PAX uh, along with her family. I, for the first time, took one of my family members with me. Oh yeah, your daughter. Your oldest daughter, right? Yes, indeed. It is her 13th birthday coming up. So we decided that 13 is a good age for this to be a birthday present. And I could go on all day. I won't. But one of the things that I thought was fascinating was I went one day without her, and then I went the next day with her. And the public and the vendors treated me like a very different entity hmm. when I was the dad. And... There was, I mean, I think one good example of this was we were standing in line and my daughter was playing a game. And after she was done, the guy kind of turned and looked for the next person in line. And I said, oh, would, would, you, would you mind if I gave it a shot? And the way that he looked at me was, was so charming. It was, oh, goodness, the charming, doddering old codger wants to give it a go. How good of him. Oh, that's... That's sweet. And then he handed the controller to me, and I didn't help things any, because I said, <laughs> I've never held a Switch controller before. Can you walk me through the controls? And I had been watching the way that she was playing, and I could see it was a standard 2D platformer, and I could see that there were two different basic controls. And he said, okay, this does this, and this does this, and this does this. I'm like... Okay, 
Got it. And he said, and there was a, a sign up in front of the screen that said, if you can pass through the first four levels in six minutes, you win a sheet of stickers. And not only was I interested in playing this game, I, I wanted stickers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what's on the stickers. You told me there's a challenge. I want the stickers. <laughs> And so he just kind of turns, and then two minutes later, after I'm halfway through level three, he looks and he's like, uh, uh, oh, oh, you, you actually have pretty good flow. Um, yeah, you, you've, you've actually got pretty good timing. And as I'm just not, I'm like first time playing the game, but I'm barely touching the platforms. I know the physics. I've seen it done. And so I'm just flying through. And I said, I said it was the first time I held a Switch controller. It's not the first time I held a controller. <laughs> he had you shoehorned in when he saw you. He thinks, oh, here's nice New York Times reading, baseball watching, pipe smoking, one-hour commute to work, lovingly but begrudgingly taking his daughter to PAX, you know, so she can see the stuff she likes, Dad. And he was kind, but he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so after I was done, I said, sweetheart... Pick out a sheet of stickers. <laughs> nice. One very good experience that I have to say, and, and props to this gentleman, whomever you are. My daughter was sitting outside the restroom after I had gone in to use the facilities. And you know, we've been walking around all day. We were tired, but still, there's more of the show to see. And she reaches up her hand for me to take her and pick her up. And so I start to, to pull her up, and she's like, I changed my mind. I'm sitting here. So it's a smooth cement floor, so I start dragging her on. Like, There's more to see at PAX. Come on, get out. And her butt is just sliding. She has this impassive look on her face as I'm dragging her off. But somebody stopped and looked at her, and he, he said, wait, is this consensual, or is this guy taking you away? Was he staff, or was no. he just a patron? He was a patron. And then she's like, oh, no, it's my dad. It's no big deal. And I stopped, and I said, but... But thank you. Like, yeah, seriously. Really, if somebody is going to be doing something to a child, it's awesome that you're making sure that, that the young person is on board with what's happening. So thank you, stranger, whoever you are, for looking out for my kiddo. Well, that's become a big problem with conventions across the U.S., sexual harassment, especially the cosplayers, mm -hmm. and people with fewer morals than the rest of us, they go to these conventions and they think that societal rules just don't apply. Yeah. There is some truth to the fact that there are some societal conventions don't apply, but it doesn't mean that the wheels came off the bus. Yeah. I think, and, like, I'm at a geek convention where there's all these things that I personally love. I can do what I want. Yeah. Do you know what? I'm sure that a lot of the games are hands-on. Not so with the participants. Yeah. <laughs> Good that this guy was looking out, making sure that the situation was on the up and up. And Mike found out how close he was to being dogpiled. <laughs> <laughs> at least he asked rather than just suddenly being the hero. Yeah. Um, nobody clocked me. So, you know, Good. Although I am a little disappointed in your daughter. The proper response would have been, no, I don't know this man. Please help. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad she did. <laughs> uh, I was kind of concerned at one point, like, come on, there's so much stimulus. Is she going to be able to do a full day at PAX? And then the question at one point became, 
am I going to be able to do two whole days at PAX? She yeah. doesn't sit down. She just keeps moving. We forget <laughs> the energy that we once had at the age of 13. Yeah. And especially when she was having such a phenomenal time. Mm-hmm. And that was that was what was important. So is this going to become a regular event for the two of you? I don't know. Um, there are finances involved. Of course. And when the other one turns 13, it's the question, can I? Can this be sustainable? And I, I don't know what the answer to that is. And can we keep their interests together in the same things? And if it means that I go down to one day and they both come with me, it was her day. So I missed out on that second day of all of the things that I had an interest in that she didn't have a stomach for, such as there's a new wave of development integrating apps and tablets and computer hardware in with our traditional board games. So that there are there, are, there was one game that was actually uh, integrated. Uh, the pieces were stacked upon upon a central base, but that base was plugged into a tablet, and it was giving you the next instructions, the next piece, the next move. So it was a dynamic game, but without a tablet, that's that's just not possible. Others are simply timers that are integrated with tablets, but there are sometimes there are certain things that you have to do within certain points of the background music. I think that Meeple Circus is a wonderful example of that. And Meeple Circus is a fantastic idea for a game because it's something that we all do. How many times have you just been playing with your Meeples? (laughs) Not in a long time. I have to check my records. And so what this game does is you draft different cards that gives you different configurations of stacking your Meeples and point values based on them. And they have background music along with it, which is your timer, such as, you know, the do 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 and so. And there are certain times where you have to accomplish this by the third applause and so forth. And it's interesting because it's more than just a timer, and so it has some integration with your apps. It wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. That's a trend I would not have seen so much if I was only going with my family. Gotcha. So anything else noteworthy? Well, just a quick check-in on where I am in the Italian tradition. I finished up Giganti's second book, and I think this is something that we can kind of connect to, even if you have no interest in fencing. This book was thought to be lost, that there just weren't any copies of it anywhere in existence until it suddenly turned up in somebody's collection. And then they said, we've got to translate this, we've got to get these plates out, we've got to get this book in distribution, because this is a piece of history. And generally, these books that are considered classic sources and these historical manuals had a wide distribution. And they had a wide distribution because they were good. And then there's this book that wasn't distributed all that much altogether. And I think it's just kind of because it was unremarkable. Okay. So I think it's fantastic that we have the the source, that we found it, that we have it translated, but it wasn't teaching me anything particularly new that we didn't find already in other works such as Capafero or in Fabrice and so forth. So Okay, so you're making it sound like it's derivative. It was accused of plagiarism in some of its later translations and transcriptions. Ah, uh, okay. I wouldn't say it's derivative. I mean... Any one of the Italian sources is derivative of another. 
I mean, they are relying on their own tradition and their own thought history to get where they are. But there are some turning points and there are some points of emphasis that are significant in one book over another. This book had fewer of those points that was, this is distinctive and this is remarkable and this is found only in this text. Gotcha. So after that, I moved on to Capafero and Capafero was a book that I'm pretty familiar with and I read a different translation that I'm used to reading. That one was interesting because I wondered why they even bothered to translate it at all. They used so much Italian in the book. (laughs) But after muddling through that, I'm on my way through Alfieri, and that will conclude my study. Very cool. So I will ask one more thing on the PAX front. Yeah. Did you or your daughter come back with anything fun? Any cool mementos, souvenirs, doodads, or did you have to hire a group of Teamsters to help with your latest dice purchase. Do you know what? I did not buy dice. And since I had such good behavior, I rewarded myself by buying some dice. No. (laughs) No, that didn't happen. It is true. I didn't buy dice this year. But I did buy, you know, I bought a mug, and I bought something that I've been on the lookout for for a while, being the retro gamer that I am. I picked up a SNES Super Advantage fight stick. And it's just one of those things that my joints hurt kind of when I'm using the the standard controls for any period of time. So the fight stick actually goes nicely with my retro gaming habits. So I was happy to get one of those in really good working condition. I saw a lot of things I drooled over, but I mean, I had budgeted for stuff, but there wasn't anything that really grabbed me that said, ooh, I really need this. I mean, The opal dice looked really cool, but there just seems to be no purpose. (laughs) Fair enough. But the kiddo did get potion earrings. So, you know, she got her swag. Nice. I'm having this picture of your daughter calling from the room one day going, Dad, Mom, where are my potion earrings? And Kaja pulls her hair back, and there they are. And she looks at you and mouths, say nothing. (laughs) That that might be a thing. If you could have seen the look on my wife's face when she saw them. Um, The funny thing is, the kiddo hadn't even had her ears pierced yet, and she bought them. (laughs) Okay, then. No, I mean, it was a wise move, because those earrings were right there, right then. She wouldn't have to pay shipping. She adores them, and for good reason. They're really cool. Is ear piercing something she plans on doing one day? Uh, She had her ears pierced in the intervening period. It It was one of those things that we decided that, you know, there are so few rites of passage in our culture that we may as well invent some. So when you're 13, you get your ears pierced, so you have that to look forward to. Is it arbitrary? Yes. But it was our bit of arbitrary, and the kids like it. So there you have it. Our bit of arbitrary. That's kind of mellifluous. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that brings it around to me for Geek Out. And because we are an audio medium, you are not seeing the list I am unfolding before me of my recent Geek Out. I do, but it's because I'm no respecter of your privacy. And uh, it's like those scenes in a cartoon or a movie where the guy brings out the scroll to read, let's go over the bottom, and it hits the floor and keeps rolling, and that's the list gets longer and longer and longer. It's been a fun month. So <laughs> I've talked a lot about some of the various video games I've played, most recently Destiny 2, but a new one has come onto my radar, and that is the game called Player Unknown Battlegrounds. And this was originally a PC game 
which for several months was the number one selling game on the Steam store. And it's a really simple premise. You and 99 other players are dropped onto an island by a plane. You're all dropped down in various, wherever you parachute down, that's just, that's where you are. Uh, You start out with just the clothes on your back. You've got to run around and find equipment, weapons, medical equipment. And it is a battle royale, last man standing game. And for as simplistic as it sounds, it's a lot of fun and can be very, very tense at times. The first few times I played it, I finally got to the ground and I just I ran to the closest building. I looked around inside. Okay, nothing in here. I, I ran to another building. I found a helmet and I found a silencer for a gun and I found a bat and that was it. Okay, move on. I'm a little worried now. There could be more people coming. Who knows what's in the next building? I'm going to go to another area. And I found another house. I finally found a gun. It was a pistol. And I found other stuff. I found a backpack so I could store more things. I found some bandages. And they force players to interact because it is a large island. I forgot the exact measurements of it. But it's big enough that 100 people, if they wanted to, could not find each other if they decided to stay hidden. But they took care of that by shrinking the playable area over a certain amount of time. If you look on your map, you'll see the area that you're in now and the area that you have to move to. And if you don't get to it, by the time a timer hits zero, you begin to take damage. So that ratchets up the tension and prompts you to move. Well, every single game is different, is random. You never know where they're going to start zeroing in on the island to the playable area. You don't know what is going to be in each house or building or industrial complex, wherever. You don't know if there's going to be vehicles around you and if the vehicles are even going to have gasoline. Because if it doesn't, you got to go scrounging for gas. So when you say you don't know all of these things, do, do we have games starting like every hour, every five minutes, every 15 minutes? There's enough people on the servers that you could get into a game instantly. And if you're one of the first ones killed, you go back to the lobby, you could probably get back into another game with 99 other people within a minute or two. Nice. So I think November or December of last year, it finally got released onto the Xbox, which is where I'm playing it on. And So a whole new market just yep. landed on those servers. Yeah, it's called Player Unknown Battlegrounds because the gentleman, his gamer tag is Player Unknown. This is a, um, a game developer who has worked for various companies. He and others decided to make their own game, and this was the product. And on PC, it runs flawless. It's always difficult porting something from the PC onto a console. So there are still some bugs. There's still some lag. Sometimes when I play and I move, I kind of feel less like I'm walking and more like I'm gliding along on skates. But they've also fully acknowledged that this is a work in progress. And they are constantly making changes to try to get it to PC level quality or as close as they can. And I appreciate that, that they're taking input from players. They realize, hey, this is all right, but it can be better. We're working on it. And it's a lot of fun. Like I said, it can be very tense in that if I can't find a vehicle and I've got to get it cross ground, then I'm staying away from the roads. If I stay on the roads, I can get somewhere a lot faster. But people are going to see me. So I've got to run across fields, through forests, looking for cover, scared that I'm in the open and I could get taken out any second. Or if I find a vehicle, I could be on the road, which would go a lot faster, but people will hear me and see me. So it's... You have to think tactically, pragmatically, and 
it's a case of if I found a vehicle, I would drive, find a little area of buildings, go in one, search around it, get out, get my vehicle, and keep going. Don't stay in one place too long because that's usually when I would find someone else or they would find me. Do you ever think about camping out near a vehicle, let somebody else come to it and then pick them off, or is that not a valid strategy? Nope, that is absolutely a valid strategy. The problem is hoping that someone comes along and finds it, and they do so before the playable area shrinks down, and then you've got to take that vehicle and bug out. Makes sense. So it has been fun. I've recently been able to get a couple of friends of mine who I've gamed with to play it as well, and it's a lot different different dynamic and i've also found it's more enjoyable playing with a friend or with a squad the biggest reason being you've got someone to watch your back until the last segment of the game anyway (laughs) well if you go in as a squad like two or three friends playing together if you're the last two or three you win oh okay nice yeah, they don't make you do the whole double you, dragon. Yeah, they don't make you do the whole double dragon, or they don't go Hunger Games on you. So what else? So it's not so much a geeky show, but my wife and I have—I don't know how we got into it—but we have recently become addicted to the television show Parks and Rec. Oh, that's always a lovely show. And I don't know how because it went off the air like back in—I don't know—was it 2015? And we're just now getting to it. Yeah, my wife got to it a little bit after it had been off the air a year or two. It was more her thing than mine, but I always thought it was perfectly enjoyable. It's in that same vein of documentary-style awkward humor as how The Office was. I was never a big fan of The Office, and I didn't think I would be this either. But I think the enjoyability of the characters drew me in. Well, and it's not so awkward that it makes you really uncomfortable watching it. I mean, I I am not secure in myself enough to watch The Office, if that makes any sort of sense. (laughs) Oh, I I think... That makes perfect sense to me. Yes, me as well. And I think you underestimate our awkward threshold. I will fully admit there is a time or two we have to kind of fast forward through certain areas of, of an episode. It's also led me to believe that everyone should have a Leslie Nope in their lives. Well, I also think that that show is remarkable because it had good enough writing that really carried the show in in so many respects that it at least the the episodes that i had been exposed to Mm -hmm. that uh, something that has some very cleverly written dialogue is going to be far more enjoyable than a standard amusing situation in which you're letting the the physical presence of the show play its course I, i i completely agree and what helps with that is good writing strong enjoyable characters like leslie and of course ron swanson Ron Swanson just makes everyone smile. Yes, he does. Overall, been incredibly enjoyable. I think we're in the middle or end of season three. It'll be late at night. Well, late, relatively late. You know, we'll have the kids in bed. I'll have just gotten home from work. My wife and I, I'm like, we should be going to bed. Episode or two of Parks and Rec? Yeah, let's do it. It's a series of bad decisions like that that made me set an alarm on my phone to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) We sometimes do that. And then we ignore it. Oh, what else has been going on? I was very happy to read that DreamWorks has finally given us a title and a date for the third How to Train Your Dragon movie. All right. I think they've got a fourth episode of that kind of in the works, but it's really just a remake of Dragon Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) The final dragon. But if you ever want to rewatch Dragon Slayer, which 
really you probably shouldn't do. You get to see a young emperor, as in Ian McNeer in a younger role. I did not realize that. Yeah, he's a priest that gets eaten. <laughs> in an absolutely wonderful scene, he's holding up his cross. And, you know, back foul demon, he's just chewing up every single bit of the scene. Get thee back from the foul pit from which thee crawled worm. And the dragon just goes... Yeah. It, the, 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 dra- is, the dragon was not impressed. No. You know, it, it's around about the time when the movie just kind of fell apart. It's that transition between Act 2 and Act 3 where you just have this long lull. You're like, you know, if something exciting was happening here, maybe we could keep the pace enough to keep this going. But yeah. you made other decisions. And and that's just the fault of the editor. So here we are. Okay, so back to, to the good dragons. How to Train <laughs> Your Dragon, The Hidden World. And... That is going to be released March 1st, 2019. And at first I thought, well, that's forever. Then the other part of my brain thought, James, it's 2018. And the third part of it said, shut up. The 90s were not 25 years ago. (laughs) We're living in the future now. And then where's my flying car and my hoverboard? That's all I'm going to say to that. So I'm looking forward to it because my daughter, the How to Train Your Dragon movies and TV show have always been some of her favorites, and mine as well. They've been something we've been able to enjoy together. And now I'll be able to take her to the third one in the theater. Another movie coming up, which I am hoping I'll be able to take her to the theater, is the Rogue One's Gary Whitta has told us that he was the screenwriter for Rogue One and also the Denzel Washington movie Book of Eli. It was kind of a post-apocalyptic tale. He is working with others. Oh, he's working with Jonathan Patel, I think that's how you say the last name, to do a reboot for the big screen of The Last Starfighter. No way. Yeah. That could go so well or not. Um, not long. <laughs> There's no in between for this movie. It's either going to rule or it's going to tank. But earlier in April, along with that announcement on Twitter, they dropped a whole lot of new concept art for a new The Last Starfighter movie. Did they have the concept art for the arcade game cabinet in it? Well, no, it's they did not. I'm sorry. Okay. Well. But the artist is Matt Alsop, who was the lead concept artist for Rogue One. And the pictures, the Gunstar, I'm proud to say, looks amazing. They didn't do the thing of like, oh, we're going to keep the basic shape of it, but we're going to futuristic modernize it. It it looks classic and it looks beautiful. And the futuristic surroundings that they have put it in, they feel current with our modern sensibility of what the future would be like as opposed to the early 80s. And it just fits in perfectly. It looks great. And considering he's working with the original writer, I'm going to have hope. That's the only thing I can, because The Last Starfighter was one of my favorite movies as a kid, and it's still one of my favorite movies. And as great as the original was, I want this to be something I can take my daughter, and maybe, depending on when it comes out, my sons, and we can enjoy it together. Yeah, it's one of those things that I have not revisited the film, The Last Starfighter. And it's one of those things that I'm almost afraid to. I loved it when I was a kid. So, I don't know, maybe that's an episode. We all pick two of our favorite childhood movies and see how we tolerate it after so many years. (laughs) You know, I think The Last Starfighter is my earliest theater-going memory. No kidding. There There may be one before that, but I don't recall. I'd have to look to see what the actual release dates are. 
But yeah, I, I remember the theater for The Last Starfighter and my mom covering my eyes for the scary parts. Both of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the creature effects were a bit too much for me at that age. Recently, I say recently, I think about a year and a half ago, watched this movie. We had some friends over and I kind of had an 80s, well, I won't say an 80s movie marathon because The Breakfast Club was not there. Neither was The Goonies. It was Tron and The Last Starfighter. Hmm. So an 80s early computer-generated imagery marathon. Pretty much, yeah. But quite a few people came because none of them had ever seen these two movies. And I felt it my duty. When we watched Tron in college, I mean, there was just that scene where, where two of the characters were kissing each other and somebody had to yell... User friendly. <laughs> How come that line didn't get used in the second Tron movie? I'll never know. That's that's the fault of the writers. It would have been so easy to work in. But no, I felt it was my responsibility to show people that these movies were great. And it wasn't just me looking through rose-colored glasses in the past and loving these movies. That they were good. And whether or not they are to other people, I don't care. I love them. So I'm really excited about the remake. And what else has been going on? Talked about the Lord of the Rings series that's going to be coming out as well. And, oh, I actually got to go see a movie since the last time we talked. You may have heard of it, this little art house flick. Not widely released, based off some book. Uh, Ready Player One? That was on my radar, but I not enough that I realized it had actually come out. <laughs> so, I mean, that's my fault. I mean... I've got to say... I went into it with zero expectations. I have not read the book. I remember watching the trailer and being able to pick out like somewhere between six to ten pop culture references from the, just the trailer alone and thinking, well, this sounds like fun. See, and I, I read the book and I couldn't figure out how they were ever going to make the film just because of all of the properties that it would have to bring into frame and it, that it would make the IP lawyers just cry every night. It must have been a Herculean effort. Is all Herculean. I can they say. Had, their secret weapon on that was Spielberg. Yeah, Steven Spielberg. Oh. <laughs> Nobody else could have made that movie. Yeah, his name definitely greased some wheels on that one. And he just calls someone up, hey, it's Steven, I'd like to use that DeLorean. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, you got it, man. No problem. Yo, I should say, absolutely, Mr. Spielberg. Of course you can. I, I doubt Zemeckis is quite that sycophantic, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But as I was saying, I went in with zero expectations, and I walked out of that theater having had some of the most fun, just pure fun, and watching a movie as I'd had in a long time. It's funny because I had a similar experience with a book. I got a hold of the book because my friend Sydney pushed a copy into my hands, and that has never, ever gone wrong for me. So without really knowing what it was about, I started reading, and shortly into it, it wasn't that it was just such impressive writing or such impressive negotiation of the plot, but it was a lot of fun, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I, partway through, I said, oh, okay, well, this is just a techie Willy Wonka and a love <laughs> for 80s references. I'm sure that... That similarity is not lost upon the writer. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not complaining. I mean, it's a variation of the idea, but I mean... Yeah, well, he definitely delivered on exactly what he wanted to. Mm -hmm. That book was precisely what it should have been. I've read the book and saw the movie, uh, and so I'm just going to warn anybody who hasn't seen it yet. 
if you've read the book, there are differences. Some things say they punched up a, f- a few scenes to make them more exciting because watching somebody play Joust probably wouldn't have been that great on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> so you can expect that there have been some changes. For the most part, I think I liked most of them. There is one particular event, and I won't give any spoilers, um, that a major character beat was removed, and I thought it weakened the story overall. But there are a couple of places where Spielberg obviously said, you know, if we move this plot line over to this other character, it'll make for a stronger story. And if we do this thing, it'll make the ending have a lot more punch and a lot more tension. And they're significantly different than the book. But I think in those couple of instances, it was good decisions. And you'll probably figure out what I'm talking about after you've seen it. But don't go into the movie expecting a faithful reproduction of the book. Go into the movie expecting, hey, I really liked the book and I wish it could have gone a lot a little further. And Mm -hmm. this is the little further that you're going to get. Anybody who tries to make a pop-up version of the book is probably going to make a lousy movie. And this is one reason why Mm -hmm. I decided not to read the book going into it. I've done that many times, and I found that it seriously skews my opinion of the movie. Mm -hmm. And most times for the negative. And so I wanted to just watch the movie for what it was. And I'm glad that I did, because like I said, I had a really fun time, so much that I want to go back and see it again in the theater, because I want to see it on the big screen and try to, to catch on things I may not have caught the first time. Well, after you, you s- uh, after you finish watching the movie again, pick up the book. Let us know what you think. I mean, mm-hmm. I plan on it. I really do. I've, I've heard nothing but good things about the book, and apparently because the critical response and the box office response to the movie has been so good that Ernest Klein has decided to write a sequel. No way. That is the, I don't know if that's official or not, that's just what I've heard from different sources. Hmm. So I guess at this point it's a wait and see. A ready Player Two? <laughs> Would it be Ready Player Two or is Player Two is waiting because Player One is taking too long? That's usually what happens. Not if I'm player one. Yeah. (laughs) There were a couple of times in the movie. Like I said, a lot of fun, a lot of just, oh, hey, there's that, and that's that. Oh, that's great. There were a couple of times in the movie which actually elicited a visceral response from me, like a gasp or almost yelling out, yeah. And I won't say what they were. I don't want to give out any spoilers, but I was very glad I was seeing a 10 o'clock showing and it was like me and two other people in the whole theater. <laughs> when you're talking about the film only having two people in the theater, you're, you're not really selling it. Well, keep in mind, I just saw it within the last few days and it was 10 o'clock at night. Fair enough. And that's the Midwest where people go to bed early. So Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those moments that I realized the only way I was going to see the movie is if I went on my own. So it was a week night, got the kitties to bed, wife was in bed. I'm going to pay for it in the morning, but I'm going to go see it. Did you see it in 3D? I did not. I'm not a big fan of 3D. Me neither. I've heard that this is one that is actually worthwhile seeing in 3D. The showing that I went to had it only in 2D, but I, I did think about seeing the 3D version. Let me expand on that, why I'm not a fan. I have nothing against the technology. The couple of ones I've seen in 3D have been cool. I have a problem in that I'll put the glasses on, I'll watch the movie in 3D, I take the glasses off and realize I've got a bad migraine. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah you and my daughter are in the, the same boat. I don't, I don't know do what it is, but something about watching a movie in 3D... I think it's something about, not the strain, 
but the effort of it on my eyes, even though it's supposed to be effortless, there is something in the transition that causes me to get a migraine. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, you're al- not alone in that. It's almost happened without fail. I want to go see more 3D movies. I think it's cool, but... I mean, this is a documented phenomenon of the diocular delay in the frame rate. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know. I'm making this up. Well, actually, <laughs> hey, I, was, I was about to completely believe you. <laughs> the, the technical thing that's going on is called accommodation. And it's that your eyes are converging in a place where they're not focused. Okay. Oh. And that disconnection between where your focus is and where your convergence is causes people problems sometimes. Oh, so you go for me for the fake science. Go to the Brian for the real science. That is the message well, here, folks. Bear in mind that is my field, my career. So <laughs> I spent an entire year doing stereo conversion. Mike, we come to you for religion and philosophical questions. Brian for the technological questions, and me for movie quotes. I, I feel like you just said that my field was making things up as I go along. <laughs> Moving right along and geek it on. <laughs> Um, That kind of wraps it up for me for Geek Out. But there is a follow-up question from something that we talked about on the last episode. We spent quite a bit of time talking about how we individually budget our geek hobbies in our lives. And we talked about that we had a pretty good handle on that. And we talked about how other people spend theirs. But I was curious, because we've all thought, I know we've all thought about it. If we had the money to do so... Like, free and clear. What is one geeky item that you would own regardless of price? You mean like a contemporary console? <laughs> <laughs> you hear the PlayStation 4? I'm still paying off the PlayStation 2. You know, it's kind of a weird thing is that where I get a real thrill out of picking up a collectible is not so much the thing itself. It's hunting for the right deal that will excite me. I mean, like, the fact that I could pick up this thing that is usually, like, 60 bucks, but I I found just the right auction that was going on New Year's Eve, and I snagged it for five. That's the sort of thing that really stimulates me. So it's the financial bargain hunt is part of the challenge with, with the geeky interest. So it's hard for me to think if money was no object. But I guess if I'm getting real honest with myself, if money really were no object, I would love to own a museum piece from one of the sword forms that I've studied, whether that be a museum longsword or a museum rapier, but then there is that Indiana Jones ethic that's screaming in the back of my head. It belongs in a museum. (laughs) There you go. Well, now see, if money is no object, then you own a museum. It's funny you say that because a guy did that out here. He was a (laughs) steel worker and he wound up owning the steel plant, and he was fascinated with suits of armor, so he had one made for himself, and that wasn't enough. So he made a museum for arms and, and armor, and it became oh, the, cool. the Higgins Armory Museum. I mean, it eventually ate through its foundation, so it donated to the Worcester Art Museum. But the Higgins collection was really exactly that. Man, I would have loved to have made a pilgrimage out to that place when it was still standing. It was my temple of fun. Um, yeah. That seems like a familiar story. The David Rumsfeld collection of maps, I think, is kind of the same thing. There was a, a private collector of antique maps, and he has, I think he's created a museum for display, and he's also put a lot of them online. 
images, scans, and photographs. It's a really, really wide collection. It's really cool to browse through it. Uh, for me, I think I mentioned in an earlier episode that I was really coveting a, one of those tables customized for gaming. Yes. Pull out drawers and cup holders and the the speed cloth underneath so you can pick up your cards easily. They're beautiful. Yeah. I've touched them. Uh, no place to put one. I might be changing my answer. <laughs> yeah, so if I had two grand that I could afford to spend on my hobbies, I would buy one of those things. Yeah. Also, there was uh, the famous comic book store Meltdown Comics nearby, recently closed after 25 years, unfortunately, mm. right uh-huh. after I moved to within walking distance of it. And I, I very nearly bought a life-size Fallout Power Armor standee that they had there. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, see, I would classify that under house goods. I would look so good in one of those. <laughs> I was tempted. I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, I didn't even look at how much they were charging for it because if it was too small, I would have gone home with the thing and I don't have anywhere to put it. <laughs> you could have classified it as an end table. <laughs> it was pretty tall. I'm not sure that my ceilings are high enough. Just put it in a crouching position. It'll be fine. <laughs> that would have been cool, though. So for myself... Hold on. Hold on. I got it. I know the guess. For you, it is a full life-size model of Stan Lee. Please. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You already have one. (laughs) Actually, it's not a Stan Lee. It's actually Stan Lee. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No. Buy one of those comic books signed with his blood. Oh. Oh, Please tell me that's not a thing. No, that was a thing. thing. Oh, jeez. Apparently, the blood was stolen. Wait, I saw the story. I didn't read into it, but how? How? I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if that story was even true. That's got to be some... The allegation was that a sample of his blood was stolen, turned into ink, and then donated, used to sign comic books with his his stamp, and those were donated for raising funds for, I think, the the shooting in Las Vegas. Okay. So, so many ethic issues. Yeah. For, for, issues. First oh, yes. of all, first of all, ew. <laughs> uh, second of all, ew. <laughs> and uh, thirdly, that's some serious medical malpractice. Well, I think the blood was drawn with his consent. It's just, <laughs> so it's not like they burst into his house and, and stole his blood. Well, I was thinking that he had gone into a doctor for a checkup, for a physical something, and his blood got drawn and was taken that way. That's, no, that's the first place my mind went to. the purpose of making the ink, it's just that where the ink wound up was not where it was supposed to have wound up. That was my understanding. I'd have to reread the article. Okay, this just became stranger than I thought it was going to. <laughs> yeah, I'm tapping out here. Okay, I don't know how we... Anyway, anyway. What would you actually buy? <laughs> what I would actually do, let's go back to the year 2002. Fellowship of the Ring is in theaters and is blowing up the world showing what a fantastic fantasy epic looks like on film for the first time. At this point, I've probably lost count how many times I've gone to go see the movie in theaters. And I was living down in San Antonio at the time. I was also new into the SCA. So I was very much into... I had a very, you know, medievally themed mind and was collecting garb and equipment. And I was in the mall and there was one of those knife and sword shops. Not like all that they carried was cheap Taiwanese steel wall hangers. You know, this actually was a legitimate cutlery shop. And they also had some of silly fantasy slash martial art at home toys as well. 
But along with that, they also had a number of replica swords from the Lord of the Rings from United Cutlery. And these were not cheapos based on what had been seen in the movies. These were the official replicas. And there, hanging on the wall, was the replica of Strider's longsword. And I saw that, and I just about pulled out my wallet (laughs) right then and there. And committed financial suicide. Well, I was doing okay. I had a good job when I was living down there, and a friend from church and myself were sharing an apartment. The job I had was not exactly paying a large amount of money, but it was more than enough for me to live on, to eat, to keep up my car, put food in my belly, and, and have fun. But at that time, when these swords first came out in 2002, if I recall, the Strider sword was going for about $600. While I had some money to have fun, I did not have that much. And I'm looking at it, and I even asked the gentleman if he could take it down off the wall and let me hold it. I really wanted it, and I had money in the bank. I could buy it, but I was also smart enough to realize that this was going to remove a good portion of the money from my bank for something that was just going to hang on my wall. Yeah, ramen doesn't taste that good for that long. No, no, it does not. And I also started doing research on it. Whenever I find something that I want to save up my money and spend it on, I go into research mode. What is this really like? What are the reviews on it? How was it built? And while it is a beautiful to scale replica of the original weapon, as you said before about the swords in those types of shop, it was a wall hanger. The steel was of a stainless steel quality. Uh-oh. One thing that immediately put me off was that it has something called a rat tail tang. As I say, the tang was probably skinnier than your pinky. Yes, yes, it was actually. And let me explain that for those of our listeners who don't know. A sword tang is the part that goes through the guard, the grip, and into the pommel, the butt cap at the bottom of a sword. And you want the tang to be nice and thick. Because whenever you attack something, whenever you hit something with a sword, the vibration is going to carry down the sword and into that tang. And a sword with a nice thick tang is going to be able to absorb that vibration, and you're going to be able to move on just fine. The, and, uh, those of you who might be fans of the Pirates of the Caribbean may remember Orlando's Bloom. The tang is nearly the full width of the blade, which is an advantage because the tang is one of the places where you're going to find the most, the greatest likelihood of a breakage. Yes. I talked last, uh, last episode about watching the TV show Forged in Fire. A lot of the guys who are making these smaller knife blades will construct them with a full tang to which they will attach slats on either side. So you'll see the tang exposed. It's the full width of the grip, and that's something that is going to be able to absorb the shock of any test it's given, no problem. The problem with this sword, this official replica of the Strider sword, or the Ranger sword, also as it's called, is that the blade comes down. It's a nice, good-looking blade, and then it comes down to the cross guard and the grip, and then the blade shrinks down to something that is literally the size of a rat's tail. Think a slightly thicker pencil, and you've got it. And then it's threaded at the end for screwing on the pommel. Although, if you're purchasing one of these swords with hopes that it will actually stand up to combat, you probably have some lifestyle choices that are 
<laughs> that are already going to make your life more complicated than the finances for this particular sword. Yes. Now, I wasn't wanting to buy this sword and then find myself a medieval combat league different than the SCA and just start going full bore with it, nor did I want to use it for chopping like whether it was wood or tatami mats or water bottles or whatever. Or people who broke into your apartment. But if I was going to be shelling out over $600, then I wanted this thing to be the highest quality. So I never did. And looking back, there's a little part of me that's always regretted, even if it just hung on my wall. Once again, I'm not spending $600 for what is essentially a wall hanger. In researching this and thinking about, man, what would I want if money was no object? I'm like, well, I probably still wouldn't even for 600 bucks. For that much, I could actually, if money was no object, I'd get myself a $2,000 actual live steel combat sword from like a, a sword maker in, in Poland. You know, I think if I were looking at that and money was no object, I would go for the actual movie prop. Hey, there yeah. you go. Yeah. That's significant for, for different reasons. <laughs> well, as I was saying, when researching this, I decided to look to see, one, if, because it has been a while, if there were copies of this sword still available on the market. Because like anything else, there was the official replica, and then some company decided to start making even cheaper versions of this for like 100 bucks. <laughs> but I was able to find it on Amazon. The price has gone down. To buy an official one now from United Cutlery, it's about $207. Supply and demand. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it, and I think that if I didn't have two small children and a five-year-old, I might just pull the trigger on it. Because for a long time, I've wanted to put up a sword display. And not of cheap wall hangers, but of swords from either movies or TV shows that I have loved. And also, swords from various time periods that I love. So I would have up there like a uh, 12th, 13th century broadsword. I would have up a 15th century longsword, a late 16th century rapier, a 9th through uh, 11th century Viking or Anglo-Saxon scramasax, and more like that. I would even have a kopesh, which, even though not named that, but which has been described in chapters of the Old Testament. Mm, the forward curved swords that you often found in Egypt. Exactly. I've uh, done research about what weapons Israel would have used that are described in the Old Testament when they had to mobilize as an army. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because for those of us who have had an exposure to art depicting the 15th century and exposed to art that was done in the 17th century, the idea of, say, the Garden of Eden, where there's an angel standing in front with a flaming sword, the mental image for that would be very different for somebody in the Bronze Age mm -hmm. than it would be for somebody who's been exposed to artistic representations of the 15th century. Yes. So it's just kind of an interesting bit of conceptual things that we bring into our readings of the scriptures. It has. I'll leave it alone there. <laughs> but in that, instead of looking at the art of what people think it might have looked like, I've actually looked into if there were any artifacts or if there are any pieces from the time period that still exist, whether it's in a museum, whether it's in a collection, they're probably sitting somewhere on a shelf and haven't seen the light of day in decades. But I'm hoping they're out there, and I'm hoping that one day I will have the space and the finances to put a collection like that up on the wall. And will the Ranger Sword from United Cutlery go up there? It might. One thing I thought about, because like I said, if I'm going to be spending money on that, 
I like it to be functional. I like it to be of high quality. There is a sword making company out there called Dark Sword Armory. Not Darkwood Armory, which you and I, Mike, are very familiar with. Good people. But Dark Sword Armory, and they make live steel, quote unquote, combat ready replicas of historic and fantasy swords. And they decided to do a line of swords based on the weapons from the Lord of the Rings. And they have the Ranger Sword, and they sell it from between 535 to $660. Which is about what you expect for a battle-ready sword. Mm-hmm. And looking at it, it looks really cool. It's the proper length. The reason I decided that this would not be one I added to my collection is that the weight on it is over 5 pounds. Ooh, that's high. Even for a quote-unquote hand-and-a-half sword, 5 pounds is really heavy. Yeah, historical tidbit that a lot of people may not realize is exactly how light these swords were. I mean, they were built as wonderful pieces of engineering that could be sturdy, flexible, resilient, and also still as light as possible. Yeah, if you can't move it, if you can't effectively wield it quickly and efficiently, then it's not doing any good in your hands. If you're swinging it, and after just a few minutes, your arms have grown so tired you feel like you can barely lift it, that's signing your death warrant on a battlefield. So... Maybe one day I will be able to put pictures on the Geek at Arms website of my sword wall, and it will probably have to be in a locked room until I can trust my sons and my daughter not to go in there and recreate their favorite battles from TV. Just send a picture of the room to Brian. He'll do the visual effects, and you've got your sword wall. Bada bing, bada bang. (laughs) And like that, a light shines from the heavens, and a solution has been found. (laughs) Um, One of the topics that's something that I think about quite a lot is the defense of the the gaming hobbies and geeky culture in general against well-meaning but uninformed people in the church. I'm sure most of those who self-identify as geeks have probably had experiences where they've met somebody in church who says, oh, well, you know, that's not godly. You should be thinking on things above. Set your mind on things above, I think is the phrase. And I have a a little story I'd like to, to share on that topic. And we'll we'll hear from Mike and James if they've got similar experiences or experiences that are different than mine. But there's a, a woman, a good friend of my mom, somebody I've known for decades. And she has always been, you know, she sees the cover of my fantasy novel in my hand and she gives me the frown. I'm praying for you to be delivered from this. And she was of the opinion that C.S. Lewis was a horrible demonic person that he was leading people away from god and she was a teacher at a local christian school and the other teacher that shared the grade they both taught second grade surreptitiously he'd go into her her classroom every morning and he'd write a quotation on her chalkboard from mere christianity and he did this for a year mere christianity surprised by joy whatever and he gets to the end of the year and he says well i were you enjoying these quotes I was writing on a chalkboard? She says, oh, they were, they were so wonderful. He says, every single one of those was, was from C.S. Lewis. And I don't know exactly how she reacted. My friend didn't say. But uh, the way he was telling the story, I think that it was not necessarily a positive reaction. But fast forward a couple years later, and she gets moved to the fifth grade. And the fifth grade curriculum at this school included Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she's, of course, she's dead set against anything fantasy. And uh, she wants to make sure that the kids, you know, understand 
everything and the, the problems with C.S. Lewis. And so she decides she's not going to just assign the book. She's going to read the book to them. And so she does this and she reads the book to them. And by the end of the, the book, she is converted. Hmm. And I go into her classroom a couple months later. And now the, the school mascot at the school is a lion. They were the kings. And I go in, and so it's not unusual to see, you know, lions in the classrooms, but she's got dozens of the things, stuffed lions, lion posters, lion figurines, whatever. And I'm looking around like, wow, there's a lot of school spirit in here. A lot of pride, you might say. (laughs) A lot of pride. Right. (laughs) I'm sorry. If I didn't, then Mike was going to. (laughs) And knowing that she's had this change of heart about C.S. Lewis, I ask her, how many of these lions are Aslan? And she looks embarrassed and she says, all of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't say that she would really approve of me, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons at this point, but it made a difference in her to actually read the material and see what was good about the Chronicles of Narnia to kind of start to change her mind of her way of thinking about what fantasy is good for. I still, you know, I take the dust jacket off of a, my fantasy novel when I take it to church. Although now with the Kindle, it's wonderful. You don't even have to do that because who can tell what you're reading? Yeah. But, you know, I've had several encounters with people who were disapproving of fantasy or disapproving of the role playing. And that particular person, that particular story is personally important to me because it, it tells me just because someone is close-minded someone is convinced that fantasy is evil that role-playing is of the devil it doesn't mean they can't be persuaded so what about you guys have you had any similar experiences or experiences that go the other direction i will admit i kind of came to to geekiness later in my life when i was a kid I watched cartoons, you know, like any other kid, and I loved, I loved, loved, loved Star Wars and Star Trek as well. But I just didn't start getting into, like, the novels and even uh, RPGs and board games until I was in college. Actually, not long after I met you, Brian. <laughs> You're welcome. Yes, and uh, belated thank you. You were the one who first, I can remember it still, we were at church, we were talking books, and you put the first Wheel of Time novel by Robert Jordan in my hands and said, give this a read. And you brought it back to me and the cover had fallen off and you felt so bad you bought me a new copy. I felt that was only right, you know. But you didn't know that those Torah books, the covers fell off all the time. No, I didn't. (laughs) But even still, it was in my possession. The cover came off and so I'm going to give him a brand new one. That's the right thing to do. You're a solid guy. I try to be. You are. Thank you. I felt so bad though because it's like, those tour books were so badly bound. <laughs> they really were. And I discovered that later after I had had all the paperbacks in a box and I went to take them out and the covers came off and the rest of the book stayed in the box. <laughs> oh. To someone like you, Mike, that's just like nails on a chalkboard, isn't it? On some level, yes. And then on another level, I also used to work in a library where I did book repair and I had an entire class come into me and say, it's the third time I've opened this book and the cover just fell apart. What can you do? And I kind of had a a backroom thing going where I was turning over a class's worth of books (laughs) doing book repair for for these people. Nice. Black market book repair. Black market book repair. Man, this cover keeps coming with my book. I know a guy. 
<laughs> I wound up buying my own kit so I could. Nice. Is that the one that you used to repair my Star Wars book? You're welcome. <laughs> and so, like I said, I, I came to it late, and my geek began to flourish, so to speak. And the SCA really helped with that as well. And it's just not something that I've found that I ever really brought up with people at church. As a rule, geeky podcast notwithstanding, I'm more of a private person, and I'm much more interested in hearing about other people than I am talking about myself, especially face-to-face. I also found the few times that it did come up because of my involvement in the SCA, the first of my hobbies or geeky things I do that would come up is the medieval reenactment. I got rather frustrated by the look I would see in someone's eyes as, oh, I do medieval recreation and medieval combat. And this weird look would appear in their eyes to kind of glaze over and be like, oh. And I would get this feeling that I just got, I just got categorized in their head. And I just had a label put on me. And that's going to skew or that's going to color their perception of me from here on out. And I'd rather not have that. So I tend to be kind of private with it. If it comes up, it comes up. I'm not ever going to say that I'm ashamed of it, because I am not. I'm doing a podcast for it, for goodness sake. (laughs) But I'm not going to be outright forthcoming with it either. If it comes up, it comes up. And I'll gladly share my love of history with anyone. The first thing I'll say along those lines is that I am a huge history buff. and But not just medieval history. If you want to talk 18th century America, if you want to talk 5th century BC Israel, absolutely. I want to cover all these subjects with you. Can we do a uh, podcast on just that? I'm down with it. Okay. I don't know how many listens we're going to get, but it'd be fun. Or that could just constitute a me calling you and us chatting. Fair enough. So another reason for that is that I will admit I'm also aware of how those who like things of a fantasy nature, fantasy, sci-fi, and beyond, are viewed. And I think that goes back to in the early to mid-'80s when there was almost a persecution of the subject. I wouldn't say almost. I would say it was absolutely a persecution. I I would know. I was a part of it. Fair enough. I mean, there were popular televangelists who were speaking out against Dungeons and Dragons and anything fantasy genre, and because there was a young man who committed suicide, and his mother said that he did it because of D&D. Televangelists went on speaking out against it. There was remember the Chick publications, the Courtesy Chick publications, the little booklets. Yeah, Dark Dungeons. Yes, yeah. there was one just based on that. And I will admit, growing up, I would hear about these things, and that was my first exposure to that. Thinking all these things are horrible; they're purely satanic because that was all I knew about it. I stayed away from that aisle of the bookstore. Yeah, I would say that that made me cautious about reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I had read The Hobbit when I was a kid before I'd heard about these things, but that kept me from going any further because I always thought as I was younger that The Hobbit was just a kid's book, but the rest of it, no, that's more adult. I need to stay away from that. And I will say I didn't end up reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy until I think the year 2001. I saw a trailer. Actually, I think I was with you, Brian, and we watched a trailer for the movie on your computer And I thought, well, movie's coming out. I guess I'd better read the books. (laughs) And I remember that vividly because the look that you gave me when you heard I hadn't read the books yet, if I could classify disbelief. If you had grown a second head, I probably wouldn't have been as surprised. Yes, that was the look you gave me. And and it was quite a, I had found you to be a rather stoic individual. And to see that expression on I wish phone cameras were a thing now. (laughs) 
Okay, so here's the thing is that when I met you, James, you were already you were rolling the dice pretty freely at that point. So how did you make this transition to maybe I shouldn't read Lord of the Rings for the protection of my faith? And what edition are we playing? Second edition, 3.5, 4.0, or 5.0? Once again, we go to Brian. Hi, uh, Brian. <laughs> there was another gentleman at our church named Mike who was running a game, and he said, hey, you want to join us? I'm like, well, why not? This is something I've never experienced. I want to just not take other people's words about it. I want to know what the deal is. And we went, and like I said, this was a guy who went to our church. It was him, his brother, Brian, another, and we had fun. Later on, Brian ran a campaign for us based in the Middle Earth setting, the old MERP system, Middle Earth role-playing, by, Brian, help me. Iron Crown Enterprises. Yeah, by Iron Crown Enterprises. And that, that campaign was some of the most fun I'd ever had. It was also where I really formed a friendship. I went beyond from just acquaintance to friendship with the young lady who would one day be my wife. And for those listening who think that role-playing is a predominantly male hobby, that is largely true. But that particular game, the women outnumbered the men. They did, didn't they? Yep. It was me and you, and I feel like there was one other person, maybe. Uh, no. No, it was Joy and Danica and Jessica. Yeah, you're right. And Jamie. Yeah. Oh, gosh, <laughs> right about Jamie. But we had a blast. And I'd also done a Star Wars campaign, a Heroes Unlimited campaign, and uh, <laughs> so I was fairly well-versed, Mike, by the time I got to you. And not just in that, but also in board games, card games, and one led to—it's usually the opposite. Simple card games lead to board games. Those lead to more advanced and genre-fied board games. Board games lead to RPGs. For me, it was well, kind of the opposite. Now. At yeah. the time, the uh, Euro gaming craze hadn't really started, and there weren't other major board games on the market. That's very true. Back, <laughs> back when Settlers of Catan was fresh and new. So yeah, Mike, I think the first time we played was your wife running a Star Wars campaign. That was the first time we played together, yes. Yes. That was phenomenal role-playing, I must say. I, I had some of the most fun I've ever had with that group. And actually, the first time that you two met was because of me. Totally. Mm -hmm. Because I'd met you, Mike, through our fencing club, and Brian from church, of course, and I'm like, I really need to get these two guys to meet. So I decided to do a one-night Western role-playing game based on... Sidewinder Recoiled. Yes, thank you. Based on Sidewinder Recoil. How did you remember that? <laughs> because I had such a wonderful game master, and I would never forget something like that. Okay, tell me the truth now. You know, I don't know. The name just sort of stuck. Uh, it was the first time I ever played anything that was D20, and so the name just stuck. I had a great time. I was kind of exploring my character. I did not like him, um, but it was, it was the first time that I really started to try to play a character that was not like, it was not just some version of me. And, yeah, he wound up being somebody who I really didn't like, so I was glad to not be playing him for more than one night. Fair enough. But, I don't even remember what character I played in that game. You know, when we moved into our new home, as we were unpacking boxes, some boxes had been packed for a long time and had been in storage, but I was unpacking one box. I found a bunch of game material, and I found my GM notes for that game session. Wonderful. It's like, wow, this is awesome. I have you throw these in the trash now. <laughs> Do what? 
I had a similar experience this week. Matter of fact, just within arm's reach, I just reached out and grabbed it. I have that Heroes Unlimited game material. <laughs> nice. Okay, I actually remember my character's name from that session. The only reason I do is because when we were in the middle of the campaign, it was me, you, and Josh. And it was one of the number of times that I worked at Walmart. And I was at work, and I heard the front service desk, page four, that name to come to the front. And I'm walking along, and I hear my character's name over the intercom. And I'm thinking it's one of the two of you playing a prank on me. (laughs) So I went to the front. I'm looking around, and it dawned on me. There's actually someone in this store who has that name. You know what's funny? You didn't write the name on this character sheet. (laughs) (laughs) I've got all your stats, but no name. That was the hero with no name. (laughs) Very Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Yeah, very important harmonica. It's one of your skills. Very important harmonica. I've lost that Very important harmonica. It is very important that you wrote down harmonica as one of your skills. (laughs) That does sound like something I would do. (laughs) So, yeah, I went from someone who at first thought that that D&D was just a small thing. And all games, not just D&D, but any RPG game was to be shunned and just, you know, kept clear of completely to introducing two of my friends to each other over a campaign that I'm running. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a very a very similar journey in terms of I was I bought the Patricia Pulling hook line and sinker. I mean, so many people who were to be trusted told me this is Satanism. And as I said, I stayed away from even that end of the bookstore. And when and you know, it's interesting that fantasy didn't always evoke that same imagery. Like Mm-hmm. Watching a fantasy movie wasn't bad. And, you know, maybe even watching the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon wasn't bad because it's not the game. I mean, there is no logic to this, but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the way it was. And it really wasn't until I was in seminary that I started to stop and think about, about this in any sort of detail. I mean, the logic was it's, it's addictive, it's satanic, it's wrong, and it will begin your tailspin into hell. And I was aware that there were other role-playing games, and I had opened one of the West End games, Star Wars books, but I wouldn't play it because, I mean, that's, I mean, it's Star Wars, but still it's, it's in the same aisle of the bookstore, so it's, it's held very much in question. And strangely enough, it wasn't until I heard this new batch of books that was the spawn of the devil that I started to become very curious, and I, I heard about this Harry Potter stuff. And, you know, I started to kind of re-examine my childhood at this point. Like, I was told a lot of things, but now that I'm actually starting to sit down and examine my faith system and examine, examine the scriptures, and I was beginning to see some dissonance between some of the things that seem to be true through tradition and experience and logic and scripture that didn't seem to be able to substantiate some of these other claims that I was hearing about fantasy books and particularly this new and up and rising Harry Potter. So I decided to take a look at it and said, you know, that, that just doesn't seem to be so. And I know that some of my relatives are not going to be listeners of this podcast, but I can hear their voice in the back of my head right now saying, but if that is so, then why do I have this warning in my heart not to go close to those things? 
And I will stop my story right here and say that if, and if you're a listener of this podcast, it's probably not likely to be so, but if you do feel that there is a conviction on your heart not to approach these genres or these games, then listen to it. Then don't. I mean, perhaps there is something else in your relationship with God that is different with my relationship with God. You have different sensibilities and different areas of temptation as a person that I don't have, and vice versa. I probably have to stay away from some things that you do not. So listen to what your convictions are. And I won't. But remember that those are your convictions, not everybody else's. Yes. Yes. And while we may worship the same God, God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, we are not all alike and we all are different individuals. And they're just some things that may be different. So, while I was seeing a lot of similarities between these accusations about Harry Potter and some role-playing games, I started to, to say, okay, let's look into this. What are the claims? And let's evaluate them individually. And so, these games will make you commit suicide. Well, I looked for a CDC study. And there's more than one <laughs> CDC study. And there's no link between playing these games and suicidality. And in some instances, there are negative correlations, as in certain groups are less likely to commit suicide when they are plugged into regular social groups with these constructs for interaction and so forth. And I'm not going to remember all of them right off the top of my head, but there was a wonderful article by Michael Stackpole about addressing the dangers of role-playing games and the sort. And it was, uh, it was fascinating reading. And it was shortly after that that I started my game as a player in a Star Wars D6 role-playing game by West End Games, which I still absolutely love. I still have not and don't intend to play Dungeons & Dragons. I don't want to say that I think that there is something demonic and evil and wrong with it. I'm not going to do that. But there are two dynamics. One, you know, it's just not quite my flavor of fantasy. Part of that is stylistic. Another thing is that I'm clergy. And the most single identifiable thing about geekery is, well, that sounds like Dungeons and & Dragons, and therefore evil. At least I can say, no, I've never played Dungeons and & Dragons. And at that point, people tend to say, oh, okay, well, then any other point is moot. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, because there is still that stigma to it. Just a couple of years, I was helping some friends of ours from church move. Not so much move, but they're getting ready to move to another state. So I and some others were helping them pack up their apartment. And one of these friends' parents was there helping them pack as well. And I was busy doing something, and I heard one of the parents begin to say something about Dungeons & Dragons. It had a very negative connotation to it something about well, what kind of people play these games or heathen uh, yeah and or well i bet you that's the type of person who plays dungeons and dragons or it was clearly negative and the inference was that a person who plays those types of games is is a sinner yeah how did you engage that person i did not good because i was not there to get into a verbal and philosophical debate with a friend's parent over a hobby yeah, good on I you. was there to help them move. Good on you. Yeah, this is the thing about these sort of topics, is that suppose I were to lay out the rational defense path for defending your geeky hobby, 
even if you win the argument, you still lose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you have beaten back every one of their points, you will not have earned yourself a friend. When you're talking about ecclesial constructs, you're talking about interactions of members of the faith in your church, winning the argument will only end in dividing you further. And at that point, if there isn't anything constructive in trying to engage them, then, you know, you're not going to change their mind. Just don't. If they come to you, then great. Yeah, you can't win even by winning. You know, I was going to uh, save my second story for another time, but that's too good a segue to ignore. (laughs) I was in a conversation online back before online was a thing uh, in the electronic bulletin board era. Fidonet? It wasn't on Fidonet, but I was on Fidonet at at that same time. (laughs) Wonderful. It was a local bulletin board. Yes. Did a lot of Um, So I was in this conversation with someone who was not a Christian. He was, in fact, a Wiccan. And I don't remember exactly what brought things up. It was a semi-public forum, and I got onto, you know, I have to defend my faith, and he's saying this and that is wrong with the Bible, and this is what is horrible about Christians. And a lot of that was based on this hostility that he had felt from Christians because of his role-playing hobby. And given that he was actually a player in one of my games that I was running on that bulletin board service, you know, it felt like, hey you're actually gaming with a Christian who doesn't feel that way, isn't treating you that way. But it, of course, erupted, and it went well outside the bounds of that particular conversation into a general defense of the faith. And he finally ended the conversation with, Christians talk about love, but I have never yet seen any. And it's just like, Mm. you know what? I won this argument, but I did not win this argument. That hurt. I mean, it still hurts when I think about it now. Just, uh, And I didn't treat him poorly, but I also didn't show him any love, and I really should have. Yeah. There's um, actually an organization at PAX that's called Jesus Loves Gamers, and all they are there to do is just to be a loving presence, because there's been too much of exactly what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a kind of casual friend of mine that I know strictly online, uh, Steve Weiss, wrote a book called God Loves the Freaks that addresses that same topic, but also including like the punk subgenre um, and goths and it has been the church has really treated some of these subcultures very poorly and to have it pointed out to me that hey i'm doing the same thing is is painful yeah now before we get too deep into making it sound like all those who are within the church view these things in a negative light okay then i have the first story for that can i please please do please go, go. mike yes okay One of the things that I do on a regular basis is run a Sunday school class for three- to five-year-olds. And You are a braver man than I. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know what? I have never been so glad that I went and got a master's degree in theology (laughs) than dealing with teenagers and the youngest children. Let me tell you, like, a different group, but a teenager one time came up to me and said, Pastor Mike, um... We believe that Jesus is fully God, right? Like, that is what we believe is a truth that arises from the scriptures, affirmed by the Nicene Creed, and affirmed by our church. Like, yeah, um, and Jesus died, right? Yes, Christ died on the cross. Does that mean God can die? Then I was so glad. 
of all <laughs> of those hours I have spent reading Jürgen Moltmann and reading all of those other theologians because this wonderful person was asking the tough questions. I and mean, rather than saying, wow, you know, don't question these things, you can actually talk. But the three to five-year-olds, I always want to give them an opportunity to contribute to the class. And so I ask, well, what is it that was exciting about your week? And this little five-year-old said, well, I played a new game. And I'm like, oh, well, what game was it? You know, like shoots and ladders, candy land, some other crap. And she says, <laughs> Settlers of Catan. Yay. And I said, oh, well, do you know what geek cred is, sweetheart? No. Well, it's a good thing, and you just earned a lot of it. <laughs> And um, so and I, did your parents. Well, yeah, I actually approached their parents this week, and she's like, yeah, she absolutely loves it. I'm like, is it the kids' version? Like, no. She's like, full on. And I'm like, okay, we have some fertile ground to work with. Like, do you have any recommendations? And I'm like, do you have time for an appointment? <laughs> <laughs> Bring her along. We've got the whole game cabinet. We can see what she likes before you decide to buy. Please take a picture of how wide her eyes are going to get when she sees it. <laughs> Look like an anime character. That's the thing is that when you're dealing with five-year-olds, they already think that the world is for them. So you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Similar story, but not with little ones. But we found a lot of people through either young adult group or even current friends we have at church and more. We start bringing up games like Settlers of Catan or Carcassonne and others. You know, as you said, Brian, like, you know, the, the we're really in a Euro games renaissance right now. And they've heard of them, and they played them, and they like them. When we first joined our current church in Texas, the couple that was leading the young adult Sunday school class, later on we got together with them to do a game night, and they brought they brought zombies. And I saw this game, and I hadn't played it since the last time I saw you, and I was like, yes! And I was so happy that they did, because I love that game. And we had a great time playing it. For some reason, I don't own it yet. <laughs> And, of course, we introduced them to all the other board games we had, Guillotine, Gloom, and others. We've had a lot of fun doing it. And like I said, these were people who were heading up our biblical discussion Sunday school class. Well, I mean, really, that's the nature of these games is to present an atmosphere where we can have people coming together over a table. And the game is the mechanism of having to get fat. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, or without having, I know that games are expensive, but or without having to spend a lot of money. Because once you plop down the 50 bucks for a really good game, well, yeah, you had to spend money to do it. But now you have it, and there's no limit on how many times you can use it to mm -hmm. foster those evenings where you don't have to get babysitters, bring the kids over if you want. They can go and play Animal Upon Animal if they want over in the corner, you know, whatever it is. So, I mean, it really is an opportunity to nurture any gift of hospitality that you might have for those around you. One way that I described this to a friend when they were asking me about games like this was that, I'm like, look, an RPG game, a board game, any game, it's going to be as right or as wrong as you make it to be. Can it be a sin to play this game? It can in the right way. Well, if it's fatal, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but then again, you can say the same thing about eating. You can say the same thing about exercising. It's just one of a number of human experiences that done the right way, it's healthy, it's fun, done the wrong way, 
done with the wrong intent, then you've crossed that line into a sin. I kind of feel like we need to brighten it up rather than leaving the last word as yeah. I didn't mean to make it such a downer. I was just trying <laughs> well, to make another point. We still have a zombie plan of the week to uh, lift our spirits, right? Yes, but I would like to have one more word on this, more upbeat. Either one of you two have anything? No, other than just to reiterate that the point of that first story, which was if someone is questioning it, show them, and maybe they'll change their mind. Isn't if they're dead set against it, don't push it. That's fine, yeah. But all of those lions are Aslan. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's one of those things that if there is anybody who's dead set against it, they're more than likely to warm up to it if they see that you are leading a Christ-like life. Yes. So beating and badgering is not going to do anything other than somebody being beaten and badgered. But if they see something in you that's worth emulating, then you may at least see them starting to ask the questions about the interest in an, in an open sort of way. And that's the most you can ask for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that unless anyone else had anything they wanted to comment on that, I think we're going to head right into the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, how are we going to stave off the undead hordes this time? This time, we're really going to focus on perimeter defense. I like that. Yeah. We've got a new batch of very potent pheromones, because what we want to do is distract these zombies from the thing that drives them. And once we get them not just hungry, but, you know, feeling a bit better, and then really liking each other, and then once the zombies start swamping it, you might actually kind of wish you hadn't survived the apocalypse. So. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. That doesn't sound like a good plan to oh, me. What, what, so yeah. what, 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 what? Oh, no. What, what, kind of, what kind of... Sell it with blindfolds. Yeah. <sighs> what kind of pheromone exactly are we going to be using to distract zombies? Cranial number nine? I don't know, but that one, <laughs> that one is holding her hand... And I don't see the rest of her, so this is really creeping me out. This is a bad idea, guys. Bad <laughs> idea. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm, I'm picturing it now. You know, once again, medieval history buff here. Instead of a moat with water, you just have an undead moat. Guaranteed to keep door-to-door salesmen off your porch. I actually have a really sad medieval story to go along with that, so I might just leave it for another time. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Well, guys, I think that is going to wrap it up for us this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out on Facebook and our website, geekatarms.com. So from all of us, from James, Mike, and Brian, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 